This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine and more evidence of alleged war crimes. The mayor of Bucha says he will never forgive the Russian people for the atrocities he's witnessed in his city. I must warn you, the images you're about to see are extremely distressing. One after another, what appears to be execution-style killings carried out before the Russian retreat. People appear to have been left where they fell. Some are in streets, others in, in places like gardens. The mayor, who you'll hear from shortly, said a lot of the victims were the elderly. He described Russian troops as carrying out some kind of safari in Ukraine. Among the horrifying sights, at least 20 men lying face down on the ground, some with their hands tied behind their backs. President Zelensky calling those scenes genocide. Indeed, this is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people. We are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. We are the citizens of Ukraine, and we don't want to be subdued to the policy of Russian Federation. This is the reason we are being um, destroyed and exterminated. These images are drawing international condemnation and calls for even tougher sanctions on Russia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described seeing such images as a punch to the gut. The European Union says it's urgently working on more sanctions. Russia, though, is denying any involvement, claiming the footage is fake. I can tell you what CNN teams saw with their own eyes was not fake. There were at least a dozen people in body bags, as you can see here, witnessed firsthand by our senior international correspondent, Fred Pleiken. As Russian forces retreat from the area north of Kiev, in their wake, scenes of utter destruction. Whole blocks of houses flattened, Ukrainian authorities saying they believe dead bodies are still lying underneath. But here, the dead also lay in the open. Ukrainian National Police showed us this mass grave in Bucha, saying they believed up to 150 civilians might be buried here, but no one knows the exact number. People killed while the Russian army occupied this town. <laughs> this is what it looks like when the hope is crushed. Vladimir has been searching for his younger brother, Dimitri. Now he's convinced Dimitri lies here, even though he can't be 100% sure. The neighbor accompanying him with strong words for the Russians. Why do you hate us so much, she asks. Since the 1930s, you've been abusing Ukraine. You just want to destroy us. You want us gone. But we will be. Everything will be okay. I believe it. 
Video from Bucha shows bodies in the streets after Russian forces left the area. Some images even show bodies with hands tied behind their backs. The Russian defense ministry denies killing civilians and claims images of dead civilians are, quote, fake. But we met a family just returning to their house in Borodyanka, which they say was occupied by Russian soldiers. They show us the body of a dead man in civilian clothes they had found in the backyard. His hands and feet tied with severe bruises and a shell casing still laying nearby. Russia's military appears to have suffered heavy losses before being driven out of the area around Kiev. This column of armored vehicles in Bucha completely destroyed. The way the Ukrainians tell us is that the Russians were trying to go towards Kiev and they were then intercepted by Ukrainian drones, artillery, and also the Javelin anti-tank weapons. It's not clear how many Russians were killed here, but they say many were and others fled the scene. A national police officer says the Russian troops were simply too arrogant. They thought they could drive on the streets and just go through, he says, that they would be greeted as though it's all right. Maybe they think it is normal to drive around looting, to destroy buildings and to mock people, but our people didn't allow it. And now it appears all the Russians have withdrawn from here. Ukraine says it is now in full control of the entire region around Kiev. But it is only now that the full extent of the civilian suffering is truly coming to light. And a short time ago, the mayor of Bucha described the scenes to my colleague, Brianna Keeler. There are different kinds of people, and there are many children, many teenagers. Um, it, these were children, they, uh, they posed no threat to the Russian troops or Russia as a whole. Um, they, they did pose absolutely no danger, and it was impossible not to see that they were children, not to see that a, a mother is carrying a child. And uh, this cynical... Um, these cynical atrocities is what the Russian troops are all about. That's what Russia is all about. And we shall never forgive them. They will never be forgiven on this earth or in heaven. Mayor, how worried are you that Bucha is just the beginning, that we're going to be seeing this in other towns and cities? So, uh, based on what we have seen, uh, uh, what the occupiers, what the Russian occupiers have done here, uh, I think we can expect to see the same picture on the entire territory from Kiev to Mariupol and Kherson. This will happen everywhere where the Russian occupier has stepped in. And... Um, uh, they cannot make progress militarily. Uh, the Ukrainian armed forces stopped them. So they are torturing civilians. And this is how they are performing. This is the so-called denazification that Russian uh, that the Russian president um, uh, Putin mentioned. Uh, but it's actually dehumanization. The mayor of Bucha speaking there. Now, as Russia concentrates its operations in the east and south of Ukraine, the key port city of Odessa suffered airstrikes overnight. It follows attacks on the city's oil facilities on Sunday. Ed Lavendera joins us now from Odessa. Ed, just uh, describe to us what the last couple of days has been like. Well, you know, many people have been here for several days now in the port city of Odessa, and many people have told us uh, that even though they've been enjoying some relative calm for days and days, that they all knew that could change in a minute. And that's what has happened exactly in the last 24 hours. The missiles exploded in a startling, violent barrage. About six strikes lit up the sky. 
Russian military officials say the attack on Odessa was launched from the sea and land using high-precision missiles. The massive plumes of black swirling smoke covered much of the city of one million people. The strikes landed in a largely industrial area, destroying an oil refinery and fuel storage facilities. Multiple airstrikes hit the port city of Odessa here in southern Ukraine just before sunrise Sunday morning. There were no air raid sirens that went off before the blasts and the explosions could be felt and seen from miles away. Ukrainian officials say there were no injuries, but Tatiana Harasim says the explosions threw her from the chair she was sleeping in and window glass shattered all over her. Tatiana volunteers in this building late into the night, cooking meals for Ukrainian soldiers. In recent days, she says reconnaissance drones were flying over the fuel storage facility. Two other residents told us they saw the drones as well. The drones were flying around and I knew they were up to something and could bomb the depot. And we've been thinking where we could hide in case something happens. A small pocket of apartment buildings and homes sit just across the street from the bombing site. Families stood outside their homes under the clouds of dark smoke, watching flames shoot up into the air. The explosions shattered windows and any remaining sense of security these residents had left. Of course I'm scared. And now they're hitting everywhere. They're doing it in all cities. We know it. We see it. The attack on Odessa follows a similar pattern Russian forces have carried out for weeks, hitting fuel storage facilities across the country it claims are supplying their Ukrainian military. But if the Odessa strike is a precise attack, Ukrainian officials say the strikes hours later in the neighboring city of Mykolaiv have no rhyme or reason and are designed to harass and panic civilians. Despite being this close to the bombing and with tears in her eyes, Tatiana Harasim says she refuses to leave Ukraine. She tells me these bastards won't get away with it. Now, regional Ukrainian military officials say in the, both rounds of airstrikes, no one was killed, only one person was injured, and that those specific targets of the oil refinery and fuel storage facilities uh, were damaged. It has been quiet here today, uh, but that does not ease the tension that so many people here in the city have felt, Julia, because they continue to watch, A, uh, what has unfolded there in, north of Kiev and what they have seen and the atrocities that we are seeing there emerge now that Russian forces have evacuated that area. And, you know, many people here simply can't help but wonder if the fight now resumes in through the east and continues to push further south toward places like Odessa. They wonder what is coming to them. Julia? Living in fear at Lavendera. Stay safe, please, and thank you for that report. Okay, straight ahead. Describing the indescribable, Ukrainian parliament member Alexei Goncharenkos is seeing firsthand the enormity of the atrocities being carried out against his people. He says the West must stop bankrolling the mass slaughter of innocents. He joins us after the break.
Welcome back. Now, despite the ongoing threat of war in Ukraine, tens of thousands of people are returning to Ukraine from Poland. CNN's Kung La spoke with refugees in Warsaw to find out why. In some ways, we've almost become accustomed to these images because they are now so common almost six weeks into the war. Ukrainians carrying everything they own and bags that they can roll, their babies in tow, except they are not fleeing to safety. We are on a platform, a bus platform in Warsaw, Poland. And what you are looking at are Ukrainian refugees here in Poland, but they are not running from the war. They are returning to Ukraine. At the bus station in Warsaw, Poland, the platform is packed. But not with people arriving from Ukraine. They're heading back. Reality of life as a refugee more unbearable than war. Katerina Volk says after two weeks, she's returning to Kyiv. What is it like trying to live away from home all this time? Mm, so bad. <laughs> Because uh, you don't know what's, what's wrong with your relatives, with your family. It's not a permanent way to live. Yeah. <laughs> the Polish government says two and a half million Ukrainians have come in since the war began. As of this weekend, 442,000 have gone from Poland back to Ukraine. Housing is a problem as Poland struggles to absorb the influx of women, children and the elderly. Stola, stola. Poland's residents have welcomed Ukrainian families into their homes, but living on strange floors and out of bags can only go on for so long. Poland allows Ukrainians to work and collect government assistance, but there's the red tape, standing in long lines with fellow war refugees to file the proper papers. And then there's childcare and schooling, trying to raise kids with new language and cultural barriers. Poland wants to help, but nearly six weeks into this war, the signs of strain are getting harder to ignore. The Polish people will welcome Ukrainians, whatever happens, because they are fighting for our freedom, and we do understand that. But of course, there is a certain limit, human limit, uh, what, we can, what we can do. When you say you're at capacity, what do you mean? The population of, of my city has grown almost by a 20% in a month. So of course, it puts an enormous strain on the city, on its services, and we are doing our best we are welcoming everyone who needs help, uh, but, you know, improvisation has to end. Some of the stories that we're hearing from these passengers who are heading back into Ukraine, a, a pregnant woman who says that she does not want to give birth in Poland alone, that her husband has remained in Ukraine to fight in the war. She wants to be with him. Another woman who owns a business who says her heart is shattered into a million pieces being here in Poland. She plans to try to pick up her life in Ukraine. This bus to Lviv has just pulled up. It's going to be leaving in minutes. Kyung Law, CNN, Warsaw, Poland. Now, Ukrainian lawmakers hope pictures of the atrocities we were just discussing in cities like Busha will further galvanize global opinion against Russia and force the West to do more to support Ukraine. Alexei Gonchwenko is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He visited the city of Busha over the weekend and documented the horrors there in a series of videos shared on social media. Some of the images, we must warn you, are graphic. He agrees with President Zelensky that what's happening in his country is genocide. You see behind me the common grave 
for more than 20 people, local citizens, who were killed by Russian troops here. And that is one of graves. There are more here. And we're hoping we're going to be able to speak to him in just a few moments' time. Now to another story. Margarita Zach. Shushna was just 18 months old when she fled Ukraine with her family when the Nazis invaded Kharkiv. Now, at 82 years old, she's been forced away from her home yet again, this time because of Vladimir Putin's war. Salma Abdelaziz has her story. I'm the director of the Jewish Community Center. This is the moment Margarita Zatushna says she finally felt safe, welcomed by her Jewish community in Krakow. I am presented with so good flowers and it was, it, it smells very well. We sat down to hear the story from twice a survivor. I was born in 1940 and when the war with Germany began, I was only one year and a half. In 1941, her family fled their home in Kharkiv, where Nazis murdered an estimated 16,000 Jews. She later returned, grew up and grew old in peacetime. That is, until Russian troops invaded, bombing and besieging Kharkiv. There was no water or power. We couldn't buy food. It was impossible to live, she says. There was explosion after explosion, a real war. Not even a monument that honors the city's Holocaust victims escaped Moscow's so-called denazification campaign. But Margarita stayed to care for her sick husband, Valery, as long as she could. An explosion blew out all our windows, she says. After that shock, he grew weaker and weaker. After nearly a month of war, Valery passed away. His body still lies in a morgue. There are no funerals because of the fighting. Now age 82, the Holocaust survivor knew it was time to go, packed only what she could carry and fled her birthplace. It is very difficult when my beautiful town, when I lived all my life, is destroyed. A driver picked up Margarita in this vehicle, damaged in an earlier attack. For two days, they traveled out of Kharkiv and across dangerous territory to Lviv. It is a very hard road. From there, she boarded an ambulance and was ferried into Poland. We were tracking her evacuation and met her at the border crossing. Hi, welcome to Poland. But Margarita still has further to go. She wants to join her brother in New Jersey. I was not scared. Where is this bravery from? <laughs> it, it comes, it comes alone to us. Margarita hopes to return, bury her husband of 40 years and see her beloved city at peace again. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, Krakow. What a beautiful smile, hope. Russia's alleged war crimes in Bucha and other Ukrainian towns drawing international outrage with European leaders calling for further sanctions on Moscow. 
Lithuania's foreign minister tweeted, and he caught my eye, Russian army of mass murderers retreat from Busha reveals the full scale of atrocities. We can only imagine what is going on in other occupied territories. No other way around. Buying oil and gas is financing war crimes. Dear EU friends, pull the plug. Don't be an accomplice. Nick Robertson joins us now from Brussels. Nick, Lithuania, of course, announcing over the weekend they're not going to take any more energy from Russia. The question is, does what we saw this weekend change anything in the minds of those EU members that do continue to pay for oil and gas? It's certainly galvanizing a lot of attention and focus on the issue. Latvia, for example, is in an entirely different position to Lithuania. Um, It is not in a position to cut off its gas supplies from Russia at the moment. But we've heard from the French president saying that coal and oil supplies should be cut from Russia. Notably, he didn't mention gas. We've heard a senior German banker today saying that if uh, gas supplies from Russia were cut, then Germany would go into recession. Uh, We've heard from Charles Michel, the European Council president, saying that sanctions and support would soon be coming for Ukraine. More sanctions, a fifth round of sanctions. But to get that round of sanctions and for them to be tough as some European leaders want, a consensus has to be found. And, and the indications are at the moment that consensus for really hard, tough-hitting sanctions to cut off and that would include, of course, cutting off uh, energy supplies from Russia, are are too tough uh, a pill for for many European nations to want to swallow. That's how it appears at the moment. But it does feel that that what has happened, these war crimes that have been committed, are a galvanizing moment. We've heard from Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, just speaking uh, not long ago, saying that there would be support for investigations uh, for Ukrainians uh, to, to do investigations and help bring the perpetrators to justice through international courts. This is all good. Uh, in in the terms of what Ukraine wants in the distant future. But what Ukraine needs and says it needs today is an urgent way of forcing Russia to recalibrate. Uh, And this week will be a a decisive week in that context for European leaders to see if they can find further unanimity. It's not clear at this moment, but what is clear is there is a lot of energy for it. We've heard from the German foreign minister as well, the French foreign minister, all saying the same thing. More sanctions, more sanctions. But the question is, what are they? Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, Nick, I know the Ukrainians are saying, look, we want full oil, gas, coal embargo, a ban on Russian vessels and cargoes. We know the Ukrainians are tracking uh, the Russian vessels and a disconnection for all Russian banks from SWIFT. It's only been partial, of course, and that's how these energy payments are being made. To your question, Nick, what else can they do? Because it feels symbolic. Does it perhaps galvanise greater cohesion of support around weaponry? Tanks, for example, as was a topic of discussion over the weekend. Anti-aircraft missiles, more I think it's a focus on every element of assistance for Ukraine, but I think it's also evidence of the immediacy of that need. Um, Certainly the military support, um, the continuing humanitarian support, we've heard that, we've heard the British Prime Minister uh, announce that in a statement. Um, But it, it, it is the sanctions that really Ukraine feels that can 
bite the deepest, be the toughest. And as you say, banks like Gazprom Bank, which is the conduit, as you say, for payments to uh, for Russian energy supplies, have been without sanctions, as has Surebank, another big bank in Russia. And there was this sort of delicate balance between the what the United States and some of the sort of bigger hawks, if you will, on what could be sanctioned uh, and affect Russia immediately and in a, in a tough way. Um, the hawks were pushing for Russia to be, uh, of all its banks, to be taken out of the SWIFT uh, mechanism. That didn't happen. It was some of the smaller banks. And, and the Polish prime minister just last week said that his assessment is that Russia thinks that it's withstanding the sanctions. That's why it took the move late last week to say if, if energy supplies weren't paid for in rubles, then, it was then uh, President Putin was implying that he would cut those energy supplies. Um, but interestingly, Secretary of State Antony Blinken over the weekend said that uh, he thought that Russia's sort of balancing the dollar against the ruble, keeping the value of the ruble up, was a construct that couldn't stand the test of time. But the reality for the Russian forces is they don't need huge amounts of time for the military advances they want to take on the ground. So they only have to fudge over a relatively short period. Hence the Ukrainians' understanding of the need for that immediacy. Yeah, and the reality is for the Ukrainian people, every second counts. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for your assessment, as always. Ukrainian lawmakers are hoping pictures of the atrocities in cities like Busha will further galvanize global opinion against Russia and force the West to do more to support Ukraine. As I mentioned earlier, Alexei Goncharenko is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He visited the city of Busha over the weekend and documented the horrors there in a series of videos shared on social media. Again, some of the images, we must warn you, are graphic. You see behind me the common grave for more than 20 people, local citizens, who were killed by Russian troops here. And that is one of graves. There are more here. Alexei Goncharenko was also recently eyewitness to the destruction in Kharkiv, Mikhailov, and other cities. Today we find him in western Ukraine and he joins me now. Alex, thank you so much for, for making time for us. Just describe what it was like Hello. being in Boucher over the weekend. It's a real horror when you are just entering the very beautiful town, what it was before Russian invasion. And now it is like absolutely destroyed with the bodies on the streets, with the bodies in the cars. And uh, for one month they are in these cars. And this, they first were shooted, then smashed by Russian tanks. Uh, it's awful. I met a couple uh, which saw like Russian troops shoot uh, just at home, near their home, a private house, uh, two people. And then in the night, they took their bodies and buried them. They didn't know them, but they buried them in their private garden. So there are vegetables there and they're near two graves. And a lot of such things I saw women killed. What the most awful I saw, a body of burnt in the vehicle, boy or girl, a child, I don't know, maybe six, seven years old. It's so awful, it's hard to explain. That's a real... Uh, massacre and uh, that's a real genocide against Ukrainians from Russian troops. I mean, you're talking about 
burnt bodies of children. You showed us images of mass graves. There are other pictures that we've seen of, of people tied up and shot, executed. Alex, as you said, you believe this is genocide. People need to understand this is genocide in your mind. Absolutely, because they're killing these people. All of them are civilians. Yes, more you can find on my Twitter and see by your, your own eyes. And all of them, again, are civilians. And there was no military target to kill these people, but they killed them. And the only reason for this was that they were pro-Ukrainian and they had Ukrainian passport. Uh, and it is genocide well, by all uh, determinations and terms. This is a genocide and they should pay for this because it's an awful war crimes committed in the 21st century, just in the middle of Europe. Alex, the Russian Defense Ministry said over the weekend that these videos, these images are fake that they said the suggestion that war crimes are taking place is, in their words, provocation. What do you make of, of that? They're lying, I mean, every day, 24 hours per day, seven days per week, they're lying. I just want to remind you, like, they, they were telling for one year that they were not preparing an attack on Ukraine, that that was just a military training. And then everybody saw what was it. Then they lied uh, so many times. So uh, I you can go to Human Rights Watch, which is a very respectful human rights uh, organization. You can see on the first page what they're, read, uh, what they're written about, about Ukraine, about uh, sexual crimes against women, uh, about raping, about killings, with their facts, with photos, with names, with absolutely everything. I invite all international journalists, and dozens of them are now in European, in Bucha, in Hostomel. I invite, and Ukraine officially invited prosecutors from International Criminal Court to this area just to find all who are guilty in these awful things, because it was not Putin himself who was killing these people. No, that was the Russian soldiers and officers, and they should pay for this. Uh, and speaking about the, the, the officials, which again are lying all the time, and they're also responsible. They are war criminals. And like it was after Second World War against German Nazis, there was a Nuremberg Tribunal. Now it should be Mariupol Tribunal or Bucha Tribunal against these cr cr criminals, war criminals, uh, Putin and all those who are around him. Alex, you understand this from a, a human perspective? from a tragic, heartbreaking Ukrainian perspective, but also you're a politician and you understand the politics and you made a direct plea to the German chancellor on social media over the weekend. And this is a country that continues to pay for Russian gas and oil, like many other nations, many other EU nations. What's your message to them today? Yes, the message is clear. In each gallon of Russian oil, there is Ukrainian blood. In each cubic meter of Russian gas, there is Ukrainian blood. Is it normal for civilized countries to buy blood of innocent people and to pay for this? So I address to Germans, to French, uh, and to their companies to stop working in Russian Federation, stop paying taxes in their budget, and stop, that is the most important, stop buying Russian oil and gas. Because Russia is just a big gas station. 
and without money from oil and gas, which makes two-thirds of their exports and one-half of their revenues of state budget, they just could not afford this war. They just could not continue this genocide. So I address to them. And there are very strange things. For example, Germany uh, refused to sell to Ukraine 100 armored vehicles, and now they are ready to pay for utilizing this. So they are ready to pay from state budget to utilize the vehicles. And Ukraine asked to sell it to us, and they refused. I can't find words. I can't understand this. Absolutely. Because Ukraine is fighting not only for ourselves, but for the whole free world. If Putin would not be stopped here and now, he will go further. It will be like the Second World War. Hitler was not stopped at time, and the catastrophe was awful. The same can be in this time. So we should make lessons from history. I think you said it. In every barrel of oil is Ukrainian blood. Um, Alex, how hopeful are you that peace can be found? That Putin can be trusted? No, he cannot be trusted. I don't believe, to say the truth, in peace negotiations. We will try our best. Because if there is one chance for a million to prevent new Bucha and Dirpien and to save thousands of people in Mariupol who are suffering right now, and we for the moment just didn't know what's ha- don't know what's happening there, it's probably even more awful than Bucha because these cities are in 10 times bigger than it was Bucha and So if there is one chance for a million, we need to try our best. But to say the truth, I don't believe Putin and I don't believe he's ready to stop the war. He only can make, he can be made to stop the war. So we need to press at him and uh, to, to cut his financing and uh, to cut all trade with Russia. And that can change the situation and stop these absolutely barbaric things. Alex, thank you for joining us. Stay safe, please. And, and thank you for doing what you're doing. And, and sharing the devastation with us. Thank you very much for covering. Thank you. Thank we'll you talk very again much soon. For possibility to address to people. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Okay, still to come. Getting aid to the most vulnerable still in Ukraine. We speak to the head of Concern Worldwide about their efforts. Stay with us. Welcome back and more evidence of alleged war crimes in Ukraine. The mayor of Bucha accusing Russian troops of carrying out a kind of safari in the country. As I keep warning you, the images you're about to see are extremely distressing. One after another, what appears to be execution-style killings carrying out before the Russian retreat. Bodies appear to have been left where they fell, beside city streets and in back gardens. Also in Ukraine, the Red Cross says efforts to help people in Mariupol have failed yet again because of the violence. The agency has been trying to enter the city since Saturday to bring aid and help civilians get away. The UN says the war has displaced more than 10 million people, forcing them to relocate within Ukraine or abroad. As the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine grows, our next guest understands the challenges of getting aid to the most vulnerable more than most. Joining us now is Ross O'Sullivan. He's the head of the Emergency Operations for Concern Worldwide. Ross, great to have you on the show with us. We're talking about a quarter of the population on the move, just to give people a sense of the scale of the response that's required. And I know when you looked at the situation and the surrounding nations, you decided actually the people in Ukraine need your support most of all. 
Uh, good morning, Julia, and and um, it's really really nice to uh, to be with you today. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, we have been down in the region now for over five weeks, um, and did take a very very hard look at the neighbouring countries, the countries bordering Ukraine, in terms of the outpouring of of, of people from Ukraine, um, and and felt very quickly that in terms of who was arriving out of Ukraine at that time, the first wave of people leaving. That the countries were were coping reasonably well um, in terms of of receiving them and supporting them, and also the profile of these people that were leaving at that time were largely not staying in the neighbouring countries, but continuing on continuing on to third to third countries. So it was felt that really the you know um, you know 4.1 million people have now left Ukraine, but there's an estimated seven million people inside Ukraine on the move, and a further upwards of 12 million people who are stranded in affected areas who will likely move um, if and when they can, like Mariupol that you just described. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing numbers in the space of what, just five weeks. Um, talk to me about how you're providing support. Thank you. Um, well, along with our European alliance partners, I mean, so no, no agency can do this alone. This is, yeah. this is, this is huge by, by any, by any, by any, any stage. Um, but along with our alliance partners from Germany and Italy and the Czech Republic and France, we're assisting people um, in a number of regions inside um, central and western Ukraine, supporting them with a combination of food and non-food packages, uh, typical family hygiene items, um, as well as items for babies. Um, support has also been provided to informal accommodation centres uh, where these people are staying. There are literally hundreds of these scattered throughout central and western Ukraine um, and we're supporting them with laundry facilities, with showers, with toilets, with bedding and some very, very specific items of clothing uh, that are not currently found locally, like underwear and socks. To give you a kind of um, idea, I visited um, a secondary school in a, in, a, in, a rural, in a rural village of less than 100 uh, people normally living in that area. And in that secondary school, uh, bedded down in the um, in the basketball arena, in the basketball area, uh, were 70 um, people that were displaced. Um, and and they were, you know, using the facilities of one toilet and one shower. And these are these are areas where we can support the local authorities and the local health self-help groups with um, in, in terms of improving um, the, the lot for these people. Yeah, I mean, there's so many challenges. I know you're also targeting people for cash payments too, just so that they have that extra level of security if they are moving around and can pay for things themselves. Um, how do you keep your people safe? Because I just deliberately mentioned the story of what the Red Cross is saying, and they simply can't get people out of Mariupol. And these are specifically sort of devastated areas. But uh, to your point, there's a danger of confusion between military and humanitarian <laughs> supplies and and trying to ensure your people are safe and actually able to get to people where they're needed? Well, I mean, currently um, in, in, in most of Western Ukraine, uh, access is still, uh, is still relatively open. Uh, we are able to access um, that part of the country from a number of the neighboring countries, including Poland and Romania. Um, um, we manage risk um, in Ukraine the same way as we would manage risk the world over. And that is by looking at what is happening and making sure that our staff are are kept well informed, um, and that we are, you know, very very aware of 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 what is going on around us. I mean, at the end of the day, as humanitarian aid workers, we have to work on the basis that we are not a threat to anybody 
and therefore should not be seen as a threat by anybody. Yes, we hope. Um, Ross, you mentioned something that I think is very important too. You described the profile of those that have left Ukraine so far, and it seems like they've got other places to go on to. Perhaps they had an element of resources available to allow them to move. They had people, family, friends, whatever, in in different countries that perhaps they could go to. You said something recently to the Irish Defence Committee, and that also caught my attention, and that was that for the next wave of refugees, it's a case of simply having to leave no matter what their situation and what they go on to. In many ways, their situation is, is worse. Their situation is very, very different indeed. I mean, without doubt, um, um, the vast majority of people that have been able to leave Ukraine so far were able to leave Ukraine. They had some resources and in many cases had family or friends or somewhere to go. Inside Ukraine right now, people are moving from east to the central regions into the west. They are moving as far as they feel they have to go to find safety, security, protection. And they don't want to leave the country. Um, They're not planning to leave the country. And these families are now, the the, the profile of them, they're intergenerational families. They have very young children. They have have elders with them um, who have very, very, very specific needs. And these people will not leave the country unless they absolutely have to. Yeah, it it emphasises the point about the time needed to stop this somehow before those people are forced to leave too. Um, As you mentioned, there are multiple NGOs, bodies, donations working and trying to provide support here. Ross, what's the, the danger that that system that's been set up so far becomes overwhelmed by sheer scale? numbers over such a short period of time and and how can that be best prevented i think i think there's two things here julia i mean one is is what is what is required now and 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 through the coming months um in ukraine i mean the needs are absolutely astronomical you're talking about as i say i'm i'm i'm, I'm irish and and I've, I've been recently referring to the numbers of people on the move um inside and outside ukraine are twice the population of my own country i mean it's just staggering what we're talking about and even if things were to improve tomorrow and what i mean by that is if there was a cessation in in, in hostilities if there was a ceasefire if the conflict suddenly stopped it would be months if not years before these people can return to their to their former lives And so there is a huge amount of support they need both now and through the coming weeks and months. And all I can say is that the generosity of the people in the United States and around the world has shown incredible kinship and, you know, and and, and support for the Ukrainian people. And this has to continue. Yet, having said that, there are crises all around the world that don't just disappear when um, uh, when, when Ukraine has, has, has suddenly happened. Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, to name just two. You know, there is, there is hunger, there is famine, there is crisis, there is war, there is conflict. And one of the big worries we have is that, you know, um, the, the, the focus on Ukraine, albeit important, necessary, and fully, fully validated, must not come at the expense of what is going on in the rest of the world. Such an important point. It must be focused upon, but we can't forget or allow other big issues to be overshadowed too. Thank you for the reminder. And Ross, thank you for the work you and your team are doing. 
Stay safe, please. Ross O'Sullivan, Head of Emergency Operations for Concern Worldwide. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Shanghai has started testing all 25 million of its residents for COVID-19 as cases surge. Thousands of healthcare workers and military personnel from other parts of China are helping with the campaign. They've also been enforcing tough measures such as separating infected children from their parents. And in Sri Lanka, a move to stabilize the government amid the worst economic crisis in decades. Four ministers were sworn in earlier today after 26 cabinet ministers resigned. The prime minister and his brother, the president, remain in office. Hungary's populist prime minister has clinched a fourth consecutive term in office after a surprise landslide victory on Sunday. Forecasts have suggested a much closer race. Viktor Orban touted as a win against his liberal opponents, the European Union and Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. The Hungarian leader has long supported Russia and was congratulated by the Kremlin after his victory. Okay, still ahead, the American music industry's big night hitting a serious note. The biggest stars hearing from Ukrainian President Zelensky, his plea, tell the story of Ukraine through music. That's just ahead. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warning investors of unpredictable outcomes if the war in Ukraine escalates. Dimon saying in his annual letter to shareholders, quote, the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia at a minimum will slow the global economy and it could easily get worse. And he says many more sanctions could be added, which could dramatically and unpredictably increase their effect. Despite the risks, Dimon says sanctions against Moscow should be increased. And global stock markets still seeing a period of relative calm despite the war as uncertainties. U.S. markets and European stocks mostly higher in the session today. All sharp 13% fall last week, lending some support to equities. Twitter, a big winner in today's session. One of the site's most popular and controversial influencers, Elon Musk, has disclosed a more than 9% passive stake in the company. Musk did they recently say on Twitter that he was mulling a Twitter alternative, citing what he calls free speech concerns. And finally, it was a night of both sounds and sadness at the last night's Grammy Awards in Las Vegas. The music industry's biggest stars applauding musical excellence and hearing a special plea from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Our musicians wear body armor. Instead of tuxedo, they sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs. The dead silence. Fill the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. There was also celebration too. Singer and band leader John Batiste was the biggest Grammy winner, taking home five awards including Best Album, Pop Sensation Olivia Rodrigo won three awards, including Best New Artist and Best Pop Vocal Album. And R&B duo Silk Sonic took home the record of the year and Best Song. So celebrations and sadness. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.